I'm happy to be among friends. It's good to see you this morning. And uh, there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and his name is Jesus. People think they invented Velcro, but no. Jesus is the one that will never leave you nor forsake you. But it's not obnoxious. It's wonderful that he's with us. He he said, uh, I'm with you to the ends of the earth. Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. The presence of God brings fullness of joy. The presence of God brings resolve in conflict. When Jesus shows up, if you read in the New Testament, hungry people were fed, uh, sick people were healed, oppressed people were delivered, and it goes on and on and on. And, and because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, um, I want to talk about him. So this is Sunday morning, and St. Louis Family Church, my name is Jeff Perry, Pastor Patsy and I started the church in 1988, our motto is to honor God, to help people. 92, I named it St. Louis Family Church because it's the family of God, and we're in St. Louis. And we're together, you know, and we're doing life together, growing strong together. We came through a flood in 93, then we came through the pandemic in, in uh, whatever year it was, 2020 or whatever it was, I forgot. And here we are. We're durable. We're pressing on. I've seen uh, people who have come through cancer this morning. I've seen People who've been through marriage problems that got some resolve. I've seen some amazing things happen in people's lives. There, there are people here that have lost loved ones, but I'm telling you, I think Christmas is better in heaven because you don't have any bills at the end of the month, for one thing. But I'm teaching on Jesus, and Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter three, verse or chapter two, verse one. He, he began the epistle after some introduction and some greetings, and he goes into chapter 2 later on in the interior of the letter, and he says, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with fancy pants oratory or human uh, wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I didn't come spin doctoring. I didn't come with embellishments. I didn't come to try to put additives on it because it doesn't need additives. He said, uh, I want to proclaim the testimony of God in simplicity. And in fact, he says, I'm determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Like he was so, he was so burdened about getting it right and doing it in just a simple way. He said, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and power. Here's the reason. So that your faith, our faith, would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. He's not weak toward us. He's mighty in us. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So we are an empowered people. We understand our origin. We understand our purpose. We understand our identity. There's so much... To confusion about all those things. And we're going to talk today for just a few minutes on something that I call a Christian worldview. A Christian worldview. And this is uh, centered in the golden text of this series, Matthew chapter 16, starting with verse 13. Matthew 16, 13. Jesus 
shows up at Caesarea Philippi, and he's with the disciples, and he has a moment. He does a survey, takes a poll. Hey, guys, who do people say that I am? And um, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So they sort of had it kind of right. It's vague, though. It's kind of like, well, some think you're John the Baptist alive from the dead or Elijah alive from the dead or Jeremiah alive. Or, so we think you're in a category like a prophet, and we think you're, 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 you're supernatural. So that's, that's, but that's not a complete understanding. So he goes, okay, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter pipes up. And he says two things that are so profound. He said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the called and anointed one, the man on a mission, and you're the son of the living God. So you are the unique person of the universe. You are the one who came to destroy the works of the devil. You're the one that the Hebrew prophets foretold. In fact, you're the one all the way as far back as the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. You're the one that's going to crush the head of the evil one. And Jesus gives one of the greatest commendations. He, he exclaims, bingo, bullseye, eureka, jackpot. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Spirit of wisdom and revelation it can come on a family. It could come on an individual. It could come on a Christian who's been calloused and worn out by life. It could come on a city like Nineveh when Jonah finally preached to it. It could come on the Roman Empire at its, at its wheezing, bloated, failing last part of its millennial reign. It, it could come on the hippie movement uh, and be created Jesus movement. It could come on this separated, marginalized, harsh uh, moment of human failure at the end of the age and bring one more wave of revival in the church and harvest amongst the lost. But boy, do we need to know what we believe. And I, and I want to talk to you and use borrow a term that's being thrown around now called worldview. Everybody say worldview. And basically, I looked it up in the dictionary. This came up in my spirit as I was preparing to minister to you. And God, I pray in Jesus' name, I get it right. I feel like I'm in weakness and fear and much trembling to make sure I get it right today and that we have ears to hear. I'm preaching about a Jesus-centered worldview because Jesus told Peter, hey, listen, you got it. Blessed are you. Flesh and blood didn't reveal it. You're Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So we are an empowered church based on the revelation that the Father gives. No one comes to him to him unless the Father draws him. He's been calling us and he's calling people to himself. And he, he has drawing power, does he not? He's so good. We find him irresistible when we realize you taste and see how good the Lord is. You, you want to get born again. You want to give your heart to him. You want to repent. You want to dedicate your life and crucify your flesh and go with the Bible, right? Well, I looked up the definition <clears throat> And so I have a few here. Um, number one definition of worldview is that it is the overall perspective from which one sees and interprets the world. 
It's an overall perspective. Everybody say perspective. Perspective is a viewpoint. It's a worldview. And it by which you see and interpret all aspects of life. Number two, it's a collection of beliefs. It's your belief system about life and the universe held by an individual or a group. That's why Jesus said, who do men say that I am? What's the group think? Who do you say that I am? So it's, it's like, what's the general consensus? What's your specific conclusion? Uh, it's a collection of beliefs. Number three, it's one's personal view of the world and how one interprets it. Very similar to the last one. One's personal view of the world and how one interprets it. And then fourthly, and this is important, this word, a comprehensive conception or appreciation or apprehension of the world, especially from a specific standpoint. And the word comprehensive means it's all-encompassing. As you land on your um, essential interpretation of the why of life and existence, then emanating from that comes all of every other viewpoint our attitude about money, our attitude about marriage, our attitude about politics, our attitude about morality, and so forth. And, it, and, and so it's important that we get this. This is why Jesus said, who do people say that I am? He wasn't like insecure saying, um, hey, do people like me? He's, he wasn't like that. He wasn't here to please men. He, he was secure in who he was. So that's not what his motivation was in asking the question. And he wasn't like, what's the crowd thinking? Because, you know, whatever they think, whatever their truth is, you know, it's, it, was, it wasn't in him. He wasn't reinforcing uh, ambiguity or, or some sort of a plur, pluralistic kind of relativism. He was saying, what, what, what's the general consensus? When I became a Christian, the general consensus was the church was sort of becoming, in a lot of ways, cold and formal in many sectors. And I can't generalize, but... That was my interpretation of it. It had kind of gone into sort of a beige kind of a neutrality where it didn't seem to have the punch in society like it had in other, other seasons. And worse yet, there was this emergence from the post-World uh, War II and then into the Vietnam period, um, a sort of a surge of births called the baby boomer era. And then there was all this sort of uh, the new morality, which was just old immorality, um, drugs became, it went from just uh, light experimentation to addiction. Uh, another, there was one of the waves of heroin addiction. Now we have another opioid crisis in a cycle again. Um, there are cycles and there are seasons. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his anchoring hope actually moved on the cold formal church and brought refreshing and inspired prayer and then fell on the lost, disenfranchised, secular, hippie, crazy culture that I saw and stirred and drew people out of Eastern religions and out of false philosophies and out of empty deceit and brought, and brought them into a, a revelation of Jesus. And in my own high school out there in Southern California, every week you could count people being saved. Faculty members of the school and students. It was, a, it was transcendent of time and an age. It was, it was an amazing and is an amazing event. And my wife and I were part of that. And yet we, we didn't get addicted to revival because they come and they go. We rooted our roots in the word of God. And I want to remind you the Bible is God's word. 
According to 2 Timothy 3.16, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by men, preserved by God, and given as a gift to all of humanity. Hallelujah. So we see a comprehensive conception of life, and I googled uh, the, the word Christian worldview, and, and it came up on uh, Got Questions, which is a, a Christian website, and and, it, and it, it talks about the three questions. This is what worldview essentially boils down to. Number one, where did we come from? The, 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 the whole origin of, of where, how did we originate? Where did we come from? Number two, what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? And number three, how can we fix it? How can we fix it? And a prevalent worldview today is something called naturalism. Naturalism uh, answers the three questions this way. Uh, One, where do we come from? The answer for the naturalist is we are the product of random acts of nature with no real purpose. Stardust came from an asteroid and uh, some DNA kind of compounds with methane and some sort of primordial stew and then all of a sudden creatures, life came out of inanimate objects and, and it bang, bang, big thing and, and it, well, there's no purpose for it. It just happened as an accident. Number two, what is wrong with the world? Well, we human beings do not respect nature as we should. So that's what's wrong with the world. And number three, how can we fix it? We can save the world through ecology and conservation. We can save the world through ecology. That's the naturalist view. A naturalistic worldview generates many other kind of related philosophies, such as moral relativism, situational ethics, your truth, my truth, bland, kind of blasé, whatever is right for you kind of a thing. It creates ambiguity and vagueness. Existentialism came out of World War II, and their conclusion was that life is empty, meaningless, and absurd. And I want to go back in time and say, hey, Charles Darwin, did people beat you up at the playground? What happened to you, dude, that you would defy the living God and create a theory that shifts completely away and pivots completely away from acknowledging a creator? What were you thinking? I'll tell you the answer to it in a minute. Uh, Pragmatism. Pragmatic agnosticism. I don't know. I don't care. I need empirical evidence. I, and it's all based on the five physical senses. You know, we get that all straight, then uh, I, I, I might believe, you know. Well, God was so merciful to a crooked and perverse generation seeking after signs that he provided signs and wonders. Give me the loaf and, loaves and fishes, I'll feed the 5,000, says Jesus. He disrupts a kid's uh, uh, funeral by raising uh, the, the guy from the dead. Goes to Lazarus and says, come forth after four days, you know, so... That's cool, but that's not the full basis of it. There's even something wacky called utopianism. Well, we build a tower to God and with our own hands and make a name for ourselves, and this human-centered thing can just somehow fix itself. Is that working for you, in the words of Dr. Phil? No. A Christian worldview, on the other hand, uh, has answers Biblical answers that we can look at. Number one question to the question, where did we come from? We are God's creation designed to govern the world and fellowship 
with the Lord. We have been given authority. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, 28, part of 29. God created man in his own image. Get this. In the image of God, he created him. Notice this. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. The first thing God did to humanity, didn't put a bunch of rules and regulations on them, didn't start shaming them, didn't wave his finger at them and say, I'm mad at you, I created you, and I'm mad at you. No, he blessed them. And he said, and he blessed them with these, this, be fruitful, multiply, have a ball, have a blast, fill the earth. I want you to have babies. I want you to subdue it. He doesn't say ruin it. He doesn't say wreck it. doesn't say soil it. He just says manage it. Be stewards of it. I've entrusted it to you. And over the rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the living, every living thing that moves on the earth. And, and, and he, you know, then he gave them food and so forth. So the biblical worldview is, no, we did not come from an accident. That's a fallacy. We came from a master creator who designed us to be productive, creative achievers that thrive in their existence. And that even when we die, we live. See, modern atheism pats us on the head and says, well, religion is the opiate of the people. And uh, opium during Karl Marx, he didn't coin that phrase, but he, he amplified it. It just numbs dumb people. That's pretty insulting. I have watched people from every rank and every social position come to Jesus. I've watched people, I remember when I became a Christian, the testimonies of our Southern California youth were, dude, I was smuggling a key, kilo of weed from Tijuana, and they caught me and beat me up and put me in jail and shaved my head, and then I got saved. And, uh, you know, people were, well, I, you know, I, all these kinds of testimonies. And then one guy got up and he said, my testimony is different from everybody else's. He said, I was raised in a good home. I got along with my mom and dad. I got fairly good grades, uh, I, I tried to, 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 you know, do things right, and he said, I got saved from being a good person, and everybody got quiet, because we were all competing on how bad we were, and contrasting, and like, it was like a competition of out-testimonying everybody of how bad we were, and he was saying, my badness was rooted in my human goodness, I got saved from being a good person. Wow, I never forgot that one. Jesus died and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he, would, by the way, was an eagle boy scout. So that guy was an overachiever. He got saved from doing it all in his own works. Because we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. And I want to speak to the young people. Because you get a hold of this, it'll give you bearing. And it'll give you a comprehensive awareness then, a worldview. It gives you a 35,000-foot elevation where you can see with God's perspective and from God's vantage point and, and with, with what God has established. God made us, and you are 
his creation and you are the object of his affection. God so loved the world he gave his son. And listen, number two, what happened to the world? Why is it, uh, why is it so messed up? What, what's wrong with the world? Number two, you know, it, it, to the naturalist view, it's uh, we human beings have not uh, treated nature with respect like we should. And there's truth to that. I mean, when I grew up in California, they had no littering, $300 fine. And then by the time I was about 9 or 10 years old, it went up to $500. So I got really big about litter. I still pick up trash everywhere I go. And I, I pick up trash at other people's restaurants and in parking lots and stuff. I just, I feel led to do it. And, uh, you know, I don't want to trash, uh, you know, smart animals don't, don't soil their nest, you know. So I get that. You know, I lived in California. I watched so much Jacques Cousteau. Uh, I wanted to become an oceanographer. I love the ocean. I still do. I miss the ocean. It's like 75% of the planet, and it's amazing, and it's it's. You know, God, in my view, as a my worldview as a Christian, He He created all the the oceans and all that dwells in them, including the stuff we haven't discovered. Oh, there's some trippy creatures out there. Every time they go out there, they find several new species, and that fascinates me, and I love it because that's I because I, I my worldview is it's not just like. A primordial stew and star, some kind of comet came over with some spark, some kind of stuff in it, and they all mixed it together, and all of a sudden we have eyes and we can see and ears and we can hear and, and cognitive skills. There's a guy named Huberman on the that recently came out and said, I, I believe in God. I'm, pr- I'm I pray every day, and the reason I do is because it works. He says, I know a lot of scientists who don't believe in God. He said, I'm a scientist that does believe in God, a neuroscientist. And I appreciate it. He's got a, quite a platform right now. And I'm just thankful to God. People like that are willing to be bold in an era of, of dismissiveness, in an era of cancel culture. And they're saying, hey, no, you know what? I've been re- I'm reading the Old and New Testament. And that's what happened in the Jesus movement. Hippies were getting saved. And, and leaders were getting saved. And, and dignitaries were getting saved. Down and outers and up and outers. Hear the word of the Lord. It's a week or so before Christmas. But I want to show you that God had a solution. You know, that's like, what can we do? How can we save the world? You know, what, how can we fix it? And uh, the, the naturalist view is we can save the world through ecology and conservation. We can certainly make things better, of course. And I'm not downplaying the responsibility we have as stewards. Christians should be thoughtful about the garden because we're so aware that it came from God and we have a responsibility to tend to it. So it's good to do that. However, the answer from the Bible about the answer to the problems of the world is God himself has redeemed the world through the sacrifice of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And I'll show you, some people think Luke chapter 2 is the first chapter about Christmas. But let me show you what it said. I'll reread it to you in uh, Genesis chapter uh, 3. Genesis chapter 3. Let me read it from 8 to 24. You ready? We're going to get some good Bible in us today. They, they heard the, the sound of the Lord. This is Adam and Eve after they ate the, ate the fruit and disobeyed God and rebelled, yielded to the temptation from Satan. And they heard him walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That verse, that sentence intrigues me. 
as much as anything I've ever read in the Bible, the idea of the nearness of God, of fellowship with God, of Him being present, Him yearning for and wanting to connect with us, making us cogent, uh, sentient beings that have a, 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 a mind. This is what Huberman said. You know, I'm fascinated by the heart and lungs. I, I think that kidneys are amazing, liver's amazing, digestion is amazing, ner- nerve systems. He said, but as a neuroscientist, I'm so tripped out on the brain. He said, it's just such an amazing thing. It's such an amazing thing. And God made us. And, 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 and he made us in his image to connect with him, to fellowship with him. And, and the Adam and Eve, were, they, they, they heard him walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And, and the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of God uh, among the trees in the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, where are you? And he said, uh, well, uh, we heard you coming walking in the garden as usual in the cool of the day when you fellowship with us right on time. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Uh, it, it was, uh, uh, talk to her. It was the woman whom you gave me. The original blame shifting right there. The original blame shifting. Good old Adam. Wasn't me. It was actually your fault, God. That's the core of most of the dysfunction of society. Well, it's blame it on the parents, blame it on God, blame it on everybody else. And then, uh, so then the Lord pivots over to Eve. And uh, so, what is this you have done? And the woman said, "Uh, the serpent deceived me. And I ate, I admit I ate it. And the Lord God said to the serpent, you punk, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. Now, my wife says God hates snakes because of this verse, but I I caught snakes growing up in California. I just, don't tell her, but I caught a really beautiful rat snake this summer, big black snake, not a rat snake, a black snake. I let it go over by the pond. It was like six feet long. It was awesome. And uh, it didn't bite me. It was nice to me. And Satan is an evil being, and this is a whole subject to discuss. But he possessed that animal and lied to humanity from that tree, tempted him. And uh, so God says, on your belly you will go, and, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I, look at this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will smash your stinking little head and, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's, a, that's the first Christmas message right there. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That's the first indication that right in the middle of the disobedience of humanity, God said, I'm going to send a redeemer through the seed of the woman, who's going to crush the head of the devil. That's the foretelling of Jesus. This is a Jesus series. Merry Christmas. Hallelujah. A rescuer has come. He has answers. 
Let's read the rest of that all the way to verse 24. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. This is the beginning of the curse. In pain, you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then Adam, he, to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of the, your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Sweat, torture, work, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife first sacrifice. And and then they clothed themselves. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. This was the pivot point. Let's go back to that. It was the pivot point of the disastrous curse that came when... When Adam and Eve disobeyed, we sinned against God and subjected the whole world to a curse. Not blaming even the devil. Flip Wilson, years ago, famous comedian, he said the de- he, had a, he had a character, I think it was named Ruby Begonia. And I think she was the one that said, the devil made me do it, right? And it's just like a thing. It's like, it's all your fault. It's fault finding and blame shifting. We're culpable. As soon as humanity recognizes it, it's humbling. But then we can get on with the next step that God himself has redeemed the world through the sacrifice of his son. The world got cursed. Let's finish that, 22 through 24. Now, he, he, he says, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil. And now he might uh, stretch out his hand and be fancy pants to try to build a utopia might try to be so sophisticated that they write manifestos against God and dismiss him and develop uh, worldviews apart from him because of the knowledge of good and evil and all this e- evil collateral damage from the fall and that they will live forever. So he said, let's keep them away from the tree of life. God did humanity a big honking favor by keeping them out of that garden so they wouldn't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and then eat from the tree of life and get locked into a curse for eternity. So then uh, he drove the man out and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim with a flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So we see the answers to the questions. Um, Where did we come from? How did we get here? Instead of it being naturalist view where it's, we're a product of random, chaotic, just happenstance and it was no, you know, just an accident and therefore no purpose because then you, the co- comprehensiveness of that is you go to the conclusion of it, life is empty, meaningless, and absurd. What's the point? And then that's where there are no values, there's, there are no moral parameters, and it goes into absolute chaotic darkness. And that's what Satan wants. But God did not want that. God wanted to instruct humanity. He gave the Jewish people the law. He spoke to them through the prophets. 
And he said, uh, uh, in John 4, Jesus told the Samaritan woman, salvation comes through the Jews. By the way, that's why there's so much anti-Semitism, because the Jewish people God has designated to have all these amazing things come through. And the devil hates it. He's jealous. And the nations, uh, some get jealous because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But we are to understand and rightly divide the word, and the word gets us settled on these specific areas. A Christian worldview helps us to translate our existence and interpret the situations going on from history currently and what we'll anticipate futuristically. A Christian worldview leads us to believe in moral absolutes. Believes it leads us to believe in the supernatural and miraculous hand of God. I believe in miracles for today. Christian worldview espouses and strengthens a sense of human dignity because, hey, I'm made in God's image. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, said David. And that my soul knows very well. There's so much collective insecurity and identity crisis in humanity that distances itself from the origin of coming from God. You push that away, study Karl Marx. Study his life. Study where he got his money. Study how he came up with these ill-fated conclusions. Look at Karl Marx in London when Pastor Charles uh, Spurgeon, the Baptist pastor with a church of 5,000, the the prototype megachurch in the 1800s, Preaching fearlessly the gospel of Jesus to post Dickens' uh, Victorian England while this guy's trying to push a satanic humanistic agenda. Look at the contrast. I've been to Eastern Europe, I drove past their buildings. They make them look like cockroach houses. Why? Because they think the inhabitants are worthless. You think that it's all just the, the, the just an accident. Then, then, then it goes into peril. You think that there's a God and you understand and are convinced by the scriptures that there's a God? Well, you're on to something then. Well, that's just mythology that the people from the, the ancients had to hold to from the fear of death and trying to make life matter. And the atheist would say, well, it, you know, be, believing in God is, is just an imaginary friend for adults. So why did Huberman, who's brilliantly educated, genius level, boldly on his platform just the other day say, uh, I believe in God? Why did Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz come to my meetings in California after, after observing Buddhism for 30 years? His parents on both sides were in Dachau and Auschwitz. They were, they were in the, he said, the Ivy League of the concentration camps during the Holocaust. And he comes out as a... Uh, a, a Jewish guy with a secular Eastern mystical bias, educated, and he wrote the book on all things neuroscience. He trained for the aviator movie for uh, the part of Howard Hughes. He had Leonardo DiCaprio. He, he had uh, uh, Martin Scorsese got him together, and there's a video of him teaching him the, the issues and the challenges of obsessive-compulsive disorder. Dr. Schwartz wrote the book on it. He came to my meetings because he was part of that moment, and he got invited to the entertainment meetings we were doing. And uh, here's this guy who's the head of the psychiatric department at UCLA at that point, 
and writing all these documented books that are the academic level teaching books that the psychologists reference concerning how to help people through the processes and get healed from some of these issues. And he comes to terms with and gives his life to Jesus. He gets radically saved. And it wasn't because I got up and got sophisticated and tried to out-intellectualize the message to him. In fact, it was the foolishness of the preaching. It was the simplicity and purity of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Hallelujah. Hey, I attribute absolutely nothing to what, how I presented it. It was the presentation. It was the subject that was presented. That's what, that's what got me. That's what got you. That's what's kept us. Young people, it's not stupid to walk with Jesus. In fact, it's daringly brave. And in fact, it's wisely right. Because the message of Jesus gives the possibility of redemption. My favorite movies have redemption in them. It's a Wonderful Life. Just seeing that turn around for George Bailey, you know. He felt like life was crummy and what's the point? So he gets the opportunity to see life as if he weren't there and the impact he made. The devil's always coming around, belittling, discounting, tripping us up, trying to get us to disqualify, making us uh, feel down, dumb, unacceptable, and ugly. That's, That's middle school, you know. But you're not. Our worldview affects every area of our lives, from our money to our morality, from politics to art. True Christianity is more than a set of ideas that we use in church. Christianity, as taught in the Bible, is itself a worldview. And the Bible never distinguished its, uh, between religious and secular life. The Christian life really is the original way God intended for us to be restored into fellowship with God. And, and you know, I know this because John 14, 6, when asked by Thomas, show us the way. We don't know the way. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, no one comes to the Father but by me. This is the message of Christmas. This is why I'm preaching this Jesus series. It's important that we get this right now. I said, it's important that we get this right now. I know that I'm preaching to people that have bought in. You understand it. This is not, I will tell you what this is not. A Christian worldview is not dogmatic. It's not bigotry. It's not prejudicial. It's not some sort of narrow-minded arrogance. It's a narrow path. And it's the reality of who Jesus is. And when you go to the Word and realize from Genesis to Revelation, all Scripture is it's inspired by God. Holy men of old were moved by the Holy Spirit to write it. 66 books written by poets and shepherds and kings and and, and prophets and all variety of people over, over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And then it all coalesces into this amazing document. And it points to our creator. It points to uh, the purposes he has. It underscores our times we're in. We're living in prophetic times. Boy, I'll tell you, 
It, it, you, it's not make-believe. What's happening in the world today is in the timetable of Daniel the prophet, Ezekiel the prophet, David per- perceived it, Jesus was telling us about it, Paul the apostle was talking to Timothy about it, and here we are in this strategic moment. Here we are in this opportunity to develop a belief system and have an overall perspective that we carry, that we cherish, that we treasure. There is a God, and He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. And He hears and He answers prayer. And He's the Lord that heals us. And He withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. And He's with us in trouble. And He'll never leave us nor forsake us. And on and on and on and on. He says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh, uh, In my view, my theological view, a rapture of the church is going to occur. A tribulation will take place. A second coming will happen. He will restore. Listen, we don't have time with this because I'm out of time now. We've got to pack the groceries for people. I wish I could go into Isaiah 65, 17 through 25, where he said he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. I wish you could read it, the end of chapter 65 of Isaiah. It's prophetically about to come to pass. But right now what's happening He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He said, I I will, in the end times, difficult times will come and yet I will come back to a glorious church without spot or blemish. He said, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Upon my handmaidens and bondservants will I pour out my spirit. In fact, let's take communion, holy communion, in light of this. Let's cherish what we believe. And in case you're not a Christian, don't put those elements on your lips until you confess Jesus from your mouth and confess him as your Lord and Savior. It is salvation time. It is rededication time. It is Jesus first, middle, last, all in all, Jesus time. And that's no coincidence you're here. Some of you are in town for the holidays, but actually you came here to hear this and be roused by this and get equipped by this, and get ready for what lies ahead, so you're confident. I'm watching godly people go toe-to-toe with these new, these aggressive atheists and have incredible, intelligent words to speak. The Lord is with your mouth. He'll give you boldness. He'll give you utterance. You need to be uh, not flimsy or fragile on your belief system. Uh, the, there's, a, there's a value in being fully persuaded. I thought about preaching. I love reading my Bible and I love being alone with God and I love praying in the car and I love being alone when I get up in the morning with a cup of coffee. But I also love godly church services and I love anointed preaching. I've been in meetings sitting in your seat and I've heard men and women preach this message and it's changed my thinking. I'm a product of it. I have been equipped by it. I have been instructed as a result of it. The teaching, the pastoring, the praying, the prophesying, the word has changed my thinking. And no, I am not some sort of blind, dumb religionist. And Jesus is not a crutch for my life. He is my whole hospital. Jesus is my all in all. Yes, I am relying on him because he is reliable. And nothing can, nothing can peel off the curse of sin 
but the shed blood sacrifice of Jesus. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. This is for Hell's Angel bikers. This is for MS-13 gangsters. This is for suburban housewives. This is for rural farmers. This is for urban uh, sophisticates. This is for all ethnicities, all ages, both genders, all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Let God arise and his enemies be scattered. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let his lordship thunder in your thinking. Let his word be dominant in your decision making. Let his Holy Spirit be the central teacher guide in the decisions you make through the course of your future. 2024 is going to be solid and strong. You might have been through some stuff, but it could have been worse. You're still here. You're still here. And because you're still here, that means there's more game in you. That means God's not finished with you. That means God has a plan for your life. I know this because you're not dead. You're alive. And you have God's purposes aimed at you. Be fruitful and multiply. Bless them. So be fruitful and multiply. No, no more mediocrity. We're going forth. Shake off the heaviness. Lay aside every weight and encumbrance of the sin that so easily besets us. And let's run with endurance that race set before us. Let's all stand to our feet. And we're going to receive communion. And those of you that want to help pack the groceries to bless the community, we're going to pass these to seven different churches through uh, Alderwoman Pam Boyd, who is the Alderwoman over that area. We've been serving in that district for over 20 years. It's an honor and a privilege to go and lighten people's load. It's not, a, it's not a handout. It's giving. We're giving, and we're not putting it on the news. We're not bragging about it. It's a humble obedience to get nutrition and food and sustenance where it's needed, and we're going to find it and help people and alleviate a little pressure, and at least just for one or two days with a family having a secure food security, then they trace it, and it's Jesus. And they, they read their Bible, and, and they understand it was from Christians, and, and, and they're people they don't even know that it could renew some hope. It can renew some hope. Everybody say, Jesus-centered worldview. Now, Lord, I receive you as my healer. I receive you as my Lord. This cup affirms that somebody suffered and died for our sins. So lift up the bread and the cup. Jesus lifted them and blessed them. I said, thank you, Lord, for this provision. This is the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for you. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're putting into remembrance the Lord's death till he comes. He died so we could have abundant life. He died so we would have eternity with him. He died to pay the penalty for sin, whose wages are death, and so that we could be reactivated to fellowship with God and get on with our mission. Say this with me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And because Jesus is my Savior, I also receive him as Lord in every area of my life. My thought processes, my mood, decision-making, help me, Lord. Deliver me from evil. Deliver me from sin. Deliver me from temptation. And lead me into your paths, your purposes, In Jesus' name, amen. I receive healing in my body, Lord, from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. Hallelujah.